Good morning. You are listening to KPOO San Francisco 89.5 and on the World Wide Web at KPOO.com. This is Prison Focus Radio. Slavery is back. In fact, it was never abolished. The 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution abolished slavery, except in prison. At the current rate of incarceration, by the year 2010, the majority of all African-American men between 18 and 40 will be in prison. The state as their captor. It's going to take people who are willing to fight, not people who want to negotiate with the enemy. Deal with 
All right. Good morning, beautiful people. You are listening to Prison Focus Radio here on KPOO San Francisco 89.5. I am your host, Nube Brown, and I am very happy to be with you this morning. We are going to have another wonderful show. Of course, it's always beautiful because not only are we doing this together, but my guests are always such a joy and such an inspiration. This morning, we will be hearing from William Palmer II, or William Palmer II, as he likes to say. Um, We're going to be hearing from him. And then um, I want you to, at some point, check out uh, William's or Tarek's story if you go to the Marshall Project and uh, go to themarshallproject.org and check out uh, William Palmer's uh, court case. And uh, then you can learn more about about him uh, in terms of uh, being sentenced as a youth and given a life sentence with the possibility of parole and having experienced 10 parole denials. And then um, I do want to uh, encourage all of you to stay with me after we hear from from Tarek and uh, because I will be beginning again Sitawa's book, excuse me, Sitawa Nantambu Jama's book, The Evil Dehumanizing Practice Within the Short Corridor Torture Chamber. We are going to begin that uh, a short booklet again and continue on over the next several weeks uh, until we get to the end. All right, here we go. Okay. All right, good morning, everyone. I have with me here today... Uh, someone that you have heard um, on the show probably much earlier on, if you've been listening to the show for a while, he was one of my first interviews when I I still didn't even know how to use the board. Uh, so my friend, William Palmer, Tarek, soul brother number nine, is here gracing us with his presence this morning. Good morning, William. Good morning, and Ramadan Mubarak to all those who are fasting during this holy month and learning the, the discipline of sacrifice and self-restraint, it is a journey in and of itself. Uh, and to all those who aren't, good morning as well. And I come uh, in peace and, and blessing during this holy month for us all. Well, I can say Ramadan Karim because I am observing Ramadan this month with my loved one, Malik. Okay. That's what's yeah. up. Okay, well, that's that's wonderful. Thank you for that. That's a beautiful just opening the blessing as well. And um, yeah, so I think we should just go ahead and um, get started from that that very spiritual heart place. Um, If you, I would love for you to um, introduce yourself a little bit more, kind of just give people an idea of... um, a little bit more of an idea of who you are, and then we can start talking about some of the work that you're doing. Mm. Who am I? I've had to to answer that question so often during my incarceration before the Board of Parole hearings in order to gain my release that by the time I figured out who I was, I had described myself in many ways. It's a blessing now to be able to describe myself as an advocate for freedom, liberty, and individuals' pursuit of their uh, definition of happiness. I consider myself an abolitionist as well as a reformer. Uh, There are things that we don't need to uh, 
uh, get rid of altogether, and there are things that we do need to get rid of instead of trying to reform. So it's a mixture, and I've learned that there's a balance in life since I've been out, and I like to consider myself a Muslim foremost, a Sudanese American second, and just a soul brother and sister, or soul brother, all my soul brothers and sisters out there. So there's many names that I come in into a space with William Monroe Palmer II is my birth name, and I honor that because I honor my mother and my father, as the good book says. I'm also reborn or re, uh, reverted back to Islam, so my brothers called me, uh, gave me the name Tariq, which means night visiting, a bright piercing star that guides in the deepest and darkness of one's lives into, into the light of uh, awokeness and consciousness. And then there's Soul Brother Number Nine, which is my artist's name that I'd like to perform and be more creative and abstract in my thoughts and, and just talk uh, from a place of uh, non-judgment and uh, not really giving a damn about what people think. So if that's any of those voices come in and out, that's who that's who I am. Um, many people know me as Henry William Palmer. It's something that I've become known for. It's back in uh, uh, 2015, we started our campaign to free myself from incarceration, uh, involuntary servitude, which is another name for slavery. And in that process, uh, SB 260 became a a bill with teeth. Uh, Rules and regulations were rewritten under my court case that gave an opportunity and have given an opportunity to many tens of thousands of youth. They don't like being called offenders no more, but uh, incarcerated youth that were trialed as an adult to give them an opportunity of freedom. And so I'm very proud of that work. It is a, it is a burden. I, I won't lie. It has been very heavy uh, to carry and at times caused me to return back to jail under some strict supervision of rogue role agents. I won't call his name out this time because I'm trying to love him instead of despise him as I once did. And with that being said, I work for Legal Services for Prisoners with Children. Also, all of us are not. They gave me a job while I was in jail this last time for a fender bender that I pay car insurance to handle. But because of the parole system and way it's structured, I was immediately at fault and had to spend time in jail to adjudicate that situation, which is still ongoing after a year. That's how our system is designed to work, so it's working as it is designed to. That being said, I am on the sentencing commission of San Francisco Reentry, so therefore I'm on a lot of subcommittees as well to try to help San Francisco become a better place for all of its citizens, including those that are returning from prison uh, are on their way to a, a life of incarceration so that we can do that in a more healing way instead of a more punitive uh, way that it is designed now. So I wear many hats. I'm an actor, an activist, and an all-around uh, human rights individual. So I wear many hats. I do many things. I, one of my latest adventures or one of my latest a project which I think is part of my purpose in life is Life After Next, an organization that me and my co-founder, Michelle Wood, uh, created. 
It is designed to help those who are entering incarceration the moment they enter to start preparing for their life after incarceration, as well as expand it to those who are juveniles in facilities or having challenges in life and those who are in foster care aging out and needing to start their new lives. So it's going to cover over a period of time a, a broad range of individuals coming out of institutions that need help in, in, in guidance, and I hope I'll be able to provide, provide that, that guidance on the Life After Next in conjunction with a, with a whole bunch of organizations and great people such as yourself, New Bay, who's always getting involved and willing to help. That being said as well, life has been an amazing venture, and that's why I'm here to talk about it with you and the audience. Wow, that is so rich. And if I recall, I think I heard the term artivist first from you. Did you, is that true? I mean, I'm, you did describe yourself as an artivist, didn't you, when we were first meeting each other? Yes, and I still describe myself as an artivist. I have a show, One Community, One Mic, on Facebook Live for LSBC and All of Us and None. I thought I came up with that 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 word myself in the 1990s when I learned to be an artist, uh, being very involved in in my Islamic community. I wanted to be able to express myself in a way that didn't disrespect Islamic values on art and how it's expressed, but not allowed to use faces or images that represent the creation of Allah in such a way that we give life to it. And so it was a real challenge for me to, as an artist, use that talent and skill I believe is uh, given to me by Allah and still have some meaningful uh, with it. And that term, artivist, came up. I later found out that great minds think alike and we are not isolated in our own thinking, that it is a universal thought. And some guys out of San Quentin also, I believe it was San Quentin, I could be wrong, so don't quote me on that. But uh, a brother named Minister X, I believe, that works for Mm -hmm. Prison Focus, uh-huh, exactly. Yeah, he contacted me and said that uh, that was a, a name that he and his colleagues used inside and that he was an archivist as well. And I was like, well, congratulations. I'm, I'm glad to meet you. I'm glad to know that I'm not the only one. And so, yeah, I did classify myself as such, and that is how we first probably in, introduced, I introduced myself to you. That is so great, and I'm, I'm so grateful that you um, – that you and Minister King X have uh, connected. I've wanted the two of you to to be connected for you know quite some time, and and it's so beautiful to hear that uh, I had met you first and 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 heard the term describing yourself as an artivist. I thought that was just so beautiful. And then sure enough, not long after I did meet Minister King when he came out. Yes, he is now the um, the. Uh, the director of California Prison Focus and uh, Cage Universal, and and I heard that term from him and hadn't heard that he was using that when he was inside. So this is I just I love this beautiful beautiful full circle. I wanted to ask you about. Um, well, I also first wanted to say how expansive uh, the telling of the who you are and that uh, this kind of journey that you you took us on because most people don't know, even though they may have sussed it out, 
that you were incarcerated when you were a youth. Of course, you had um, referenced the case in Reed 260, which I'm very happy to hear is uh, really instrumental in making some necessary changes. I mean, uh, I've just been in recent conversations around the, incar- the, the caging or the enslaving, uh, the re-enslaving of our youth as genocidal. And um, and so then to take that to the life after next, uh, uh, because we know that um, our youth are still going to be incarcerated. Uh, people, uh, especially, you know, disproportionately black and brown people are going to be, and poor people, uh, uh, caged, uh, found ways to be uh, in um, contact with um I don't want to say law enforcement because they they follow neither any kinds of constitutional, governmental, or universal laws, um, but uh, they do they are very um, good, unfortunately, um, at uh, capturing people and snatching them from the streets. So it's good to hear about life after next. Is this like um, is is this an organization that is about consulting other? organizations and nonprofits and, um, uh, you know, just grassroots organizations to help in in the work that they do with uh, uh, folks on the inside or, uh, you, know, are, you know, are somehow um, engaged with the carceral system. Can you suss that out a little bit more? Yes. Life After Next is going to be a nonprofit that builds coalitions with other nonprofits so we can meet the service needs of the client. Mm. In my experience of working with nonprofits in general as a client and as a service provider, many times I have noticed that we compete for the same small crumbs of funding. Mm-hmm. When those larger pieces of bread are bestowed upon us by the great ones in government that we are so beholding to at times, that, that nausea for me and at, at, at other times, I criticize my peers for uh, just bowing down to their to their to their power. But I understand. Still, um, we tend to isolate ourselves in order to get as big as a piece of that bread as possible. I'm hoping that Life After Next can really be an organization that is an example of there's enough for everyone. I, mm. I believe that. The divine one is going to bestow upon those who are doing the work, who are thinking outside of the white supremacist structure of organizations and and helping service these clients that we are uh, looking to serve, and to to show that coalition and organization and like you say, grassroots organizations and building foundations is a village work and not a uh, individual work. So we are going to concentrate first and foremost on those that are incarcerated because we want to end slavery by any means necessary. We want to provide those that's coming out of slavery with their 40 acres and mural, teach them how to gain that themselves, be independent, be also interdependent with their community and help protect it from those people who are still living a toxic life. So it's so encompassed. We want to provide natural medicines for them, uh, hook them up or uh, assign them with uh, uh, natural medical practitioners who use natural resources of the earth, use natural mental 
rehabilitation, cognitive reconstructive methods such as horse therapy, motor uh, uh, therapy. We are trying to do a step-up program to where we house people and then gradually wean them off of assistant housing so they can be functional homeowners uh, at some point in time. So we want to be very progressive in what we're doing. We want to go outside of the, the normal box of what reentry looks like when I came out, which was 111 Taylor living with 12 people, not really being cared for. The food was uh, bust in or brought in and it tasted less than desirable. So many of us used our so-called savings that we were there living free to save money. We would use our money just to go eat food that didn't taste worse than prison food. I think that's just not even humane. We're free and we, we're worse than prisoners at certain points, but that's neither here nor there. I want to work with places like GEO and help them transform. I want to work with police officers, the police department, as I'm working with the sheriff's department of San Francisco, and show them how to be community uh, service workers because we pay your taxes. We are your clients, and you should treat us as such. We are your 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 employers, and you should treat us as such. And so Life After Next is not really a political organization, but how can you live in this society and not be politi political ties or, you know, be a part of the civic duties that, that are uh, assigned to each and every one of us. So we want to help those people returning from incarceration and, and have them civically engaged as well as begin their new life in a positive way and making amends for, if they're innocent, just making amends as human beings because we've all done something wrong. But if you are guilty of a crime that hurt another individual to be able to make amends to your uh, fellow community uh, brother and sister. Wow, I love that. No, that's that's no, that's great. I mean, you know, I think we really just have to honor the you know the many the many pathways into uh, you know dismantling this prison industrial complex, right? It because it is very complex, and um, you know, and I'm sure that you've heard some of this. You know, there are going to be you know people that are going to push back against you know working with the cops because there are some people that think you know. They just need to be abolished, right? Or, you know, there's just another starting place, so they need to be defunded, right? And and then I think that there are many, I think there are many approaches, and, and I hope that what we see in the challenge is that we are all headed to the same place, and how can we empower one another, um, you know, because we have, we are within this system, so how do we work to empower each other as we are kind of dealing with this, this you know, um, highly racialized, capitalist, imperialist, colonial settler, uh, uh, white, I don't call, I don't like to call it white supremacy because it's not, like I say all the time, there's nothing supreme about it. So I call it a pathology. Um, and you don't have to be white to be uh, playing into that pathology. Amen. Um, but, um, you know, uh, and, and so we have to work within we have to have an understanding about what's, what kind of system that we're in and, you know, and people are finding ways to kind of how do we start creating systems that work outside of, outside of it. And so it's very complex and there are, there are many approaches. And so, um, I think this is good. And it sounds like, uh, it's, um, much of it is informed also by, um, your Islamic faith. Is that also what I'm hearing? 
Yes, and I speak to that a lot because the founding of this country was acknowledged, the sovereignty of this nation when when we as Americans uh, succeeded from Great Britain. The first two countries to acknowledge this nation was Morocco and Egypt, and they were Islamic at the time, and just mm. have gone through the the expulsion out of Spain and Europe in general when they came out of dark ages and wanted to push Muslims and Islam out to re you know to re to to reorganize themselves and to retake their their own their own land and and, and be used of it, which I understand. However, if you have two Islamic countries being the first to acknowledge you as a sovereign country, where is the Islamic acknowledgement in the country? When Christopher Columbus was coming over here, there were two Muslim captains and other two ships that didn't wreck that showed him the way here and saved him when he did wreck. And when they stepped shores, when the new Europeans stepped on this land, uh, many of the tribes that they came in contact were Muslim African tribes that had already got here, which is recorded in Christopher Columbus' diary as he saw the ships uh, coming back and forth on his way here. So we have a long, Muslims have a long, rich history on this land and bringing the Europeans, the Spaniards in, in, in particular, to this land so that they could end up doing what they have done, which we don't take credit for that. Or we don't acknowledge that because many of us fought to stop them from being so oppressive and abusive. So I speak to it because the construct of this country under a more wasp of our Christian Judeo construction they don't leave room for Fridays for us to be able to worship. Like, I still have to go to work on Fridays and maybe take my lunch break to go worship my Lord, the same Lord of Abraham, Moses, and the tribes. But it's constructed so that the Sabbath and the Sunday can be observed. We don't uh, think about closing things down for the month of Ramadan or making sure that halal food is served in McDonald's. Like, we're not acknowledged yet. When every president goes to take oath of office or one of those secret societies and Masonic orders begin to make their oaths, the Quran is acknowledged as one of the great uh, law books that has ever been given to mankind and was, was the last law book to be given as, as we look at the divine uh, aspect of it. So I, when I say that I'm Muslim first, it's not to the exclusion of any other way of life that exists, but it is a continuation and we believe the final stages of many of our predecessors that came before us. So I do follow Jesus. I are I like to call him by what his mother called him, Yahshua. Uh and I do follow Musa and I do follow uh Abraham and, and so on and so forth. And instead of being divided in this way, I try to unite us in this way and speak out for everyone and protect every temple synagogue, church, and, and masjid that's on our land. And so in doing that, those principles uh, are carried over into every exercise that I, I undertake in our community. And Life After Next is not an Islamic organization in that it's separate from anything else. It's Islamic in how I want to treat my brothers and sisters of my human race. So like you, I don't even like to use the term white and black and brown and yellow and all these colors to define my human brothers. I like to call them by their father's name. And if I don't know them by their, or I like to call them by their nationality. And if I don't know them by their nationality, I like to refer to them by their father's name, which is how we mostly identified our surnames, if not 
uh, mother and father. So in doing that, we give people their recognition as who they really are. Like when I explained to you who I am, I gave you my name. I did not introduce myself as a color. I did not introduce myself as black, negro, or colored, or a slave, or disadvantaged, or victim, or any of that. Those are constructs of somebody else's imagination. What I did was honor my people by acknowledging the names in which I was given and given and whom I was given them by. So reverence in the womb that I was created from. And so Life After Next is that is that organization is coming out of this um this toxic construct that our forefathers had constructed for his well being and not for all of our well being. And we want to pass this new healing technique or this new healing practice that's new to this society but not new to uh mankind and womankind, but mankind includes all of us. But I like to say womankind every now and then to make sure that uh, the other side is, is, is identified and appreciated, especially just after Mother's Day. Um, having said that, Life After Next believe that human rights, having the right to shelter, clothing, food, transportation, and a, a, a honest means to earning a living, these are some of the most honorable things that Islam puts out there, and I believe that we all should have this as our as our understanding in our communities. Like, if we're not educating in school, if we're not educating in our places of worship, if we're not educating ourselves in our homes, if we're not educating ourselves as a community, that these are human rights and not some capitalist uh, mumbo-jumbo that says that if you're not good at business, then you can't have this. If you're not good at making a billion dollars, you're not. You can't have good food in your neighborhood. You can't have decent living. You can't have a livable wages. That is just inhumane to me. That if you're not physically, mentally, or whatever financially capable of providing your offspring with the ability to supersede someone else by capitalizing off of someone that's weaker, that to me is not a a, a, a platform for the success of our human race. And there's only one race to me, which is the human race. And so life after next will and have and are drawn from the human principles of the universe, as you spoke of as well, that is universal to us all. I know I said a lot again. I'm sorry. (laughs) That's wonderful. You were so passionate about it. And, you know, one of the things that I love is I think – I think it's, uh, you know, you're expressing the deeper aspects of it. I mean, this it means something to you. It's not just some, uh, well, again, it has, it has, it has deeper meaning. You're ta- it's, 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 it's your deep personal work. And, um, I think, um, that I personally agree with that informing the movements that we make, um, in our lives and, the, and, you know, having a purpose around, the movements that we're making and why we're engaging with people to what degree, why are we engaging with people and from what place are we trying to get over on them or are we trying to be, are we really trying to connect? And that's what I hear from you. I, I think it's a, yeah, you don't need to apologize. That's, that's, that's wonderful. We want to hear from you, Tarek, and that's who we're hearing from. So thank you so much for that. And I want to say, uh, we don't have a, um, we, you know, we have about, you know, five, seven minutes here. And I definitely, um, I, if you don't mind, just like even being, you know, taking a little more, uh, you know, personal, if, if you wouldn't mind. You know, you spent, um, you were you were caged as a youth. 
and um, you it, it sounds like you you learned a lot even during that uh, that I would imagine would be a somewhat traumatic time I know that um, and that you were uh, caged for 30 years, I believe. Is that right? 31 years and 22 days to be exact, but who's counting? Yeah, right. But that's real, right? Because we know how how precious our time is, how precious our freedom is, how precious life is. And you had been denied that for yeah, 31 days and uh, 31 years and 22 days. So we're, yeah, we want to count because we want to make it count. And how I would love for you to share, if you'd be willing, is how have you made that count since since you have been out? If you would share some of your some of your challenges, your joys, and and how um, you know to share some of that with people uh, that are listening who have loved ones that are are, are have returned or are returning soon, um, and or those uh, that have loved ones or the or the people themselves. Yes, it would be an honor to share this because it's an ongoing struggle. It, it isn't a process that is over with because you took a class or you, you know, you sat down and examined yourself and became aware and conscious that um, struggle of self and, and living life ends. And I know a lot of people would like to think that if you pray to God and do the right thing, then life is supposed to be paradise here on earth. No, it's just supposed to be good. And what good means is relative and subjective and all of this. But, the, the you know, we believe that the next life after really, you know, after we die from this place, uh, is where perfection uh, becomes. But we strive for, per, for perfection in this life. So my journey uh, to be reentered society started before I, was, before I entered incarceration. And there were a lot of things that happened to me before incarceration that was prepping me to be incarcerated and stay incarcerated, if not physically, mentally, as and emotionally as well. Uh, there's an article that's going to be coming out about me pretty soon. I don't have the time to really go into it right now, nor am I fully prepared to, that I had neglected to even speak about because I know the discrimination and bias that comes with uh Incarceration itself, parole itself, and some some people's crimes are even more discriminated against. And knowing that I was innocent and that there are plenty of people who are innocent of the crime, it doesn't uh, exo- um, uh, it doesn't help or it doesn't negate how people will still see them, and we'll have to fight that battle when it comes. But in coming outside of incarceration, I had a lot of adjustments to do. Arrested uh, development is real. I didn't know how real it was. I heard about it. I studied about it. And it wasn't until I actually was out here walking the streets of San Francisco that I began to understand what it actually is. And I was a 48-year-old man viewing the world from a 17-year-old eyes still because that was the last time I seen it. That's how I remembered it in my dreams. That's how I fantasized about it as I was going to get out. Even with all the education, both academically, spiritually, and so on, that was just knowledge. And knowledge is not uh, applicable uh, wisdom and understanding. Uh, it, It wasn't something that I can apply inside of prison. It was just something that I was hopefully aware of, and I was. And so drugs and alcohol was a thing 
being in high school, but it wasn't an addiction for me. And so I, I knew I wasn't going to have a problem with that. But relationships, whether they're romantic or not, uh, business-wise, employment-wise, socially, my community, uh, with authority, I, have, I had not yet still resolved my issues with authority who I felt were my biggest oppressors and abusers who never used the word, I'm sorry, or can you please forgive us for what we've done to you? 23 of my 31 years of incarceration was legally by the courts of California designated as constitutional excessive punishment, excessive punishment, hmm. cruel and unusual. And this started at 17, a child. So we're not talking about doing this to an adult who has the capacity to rationalize and, and conceptualize this because their brain is developed like after 25. But this started you know, seven years before that, eight years before that. So when I got out, I was madly in love with the first woman I allowed to enter my life and be in a relationship with, but I was still toxic in that. So that dissolved in, in unfortunately, um, I, you know, I still care about her today. Then I was blessed to meet another woman who have held my hand through the process of growing up and, and give me the backing that I needed to enter into all of the spaces that an adult man needs to enter with the confidence and, and, and assurance of having someone behind them. And I also entered into spaces of, of, of politics and, you know, spaces where they need to hear voices of people who were system impacted. So I had no problems stepping to the parole agent in such a way although it caused conflict. I had no problem stepping to the sheriff, the police department, the district attorneys, everybody, because I couldn't just do my time and go away and say, well, let the next man suffer like I did. There has to be someone who stands up and says, I know that speaking out will cause me uh, heartache and it will cause for sacrifices and I won't get the leniency that those who just shut up and parole themselves will get. But that's what I was created for. And although at times, like, Jesus didn't want to go on to the cross, he was like, if you could take this cup from my lips, go ahead, God, you know. But he was like, I already know this is my journey. So he stopped uh, his disciples from, instead of just cutting off the ear, from cutting off the head of the, the soldiers that was coming to get him because it was that, that his time. And this is my time. Like you said, it's my time to step up to the plate. I call it the age of the slave. I'm a for, former, I'm still technically under the slave plantation's uh, authority, but at some point I'm going to become a former slave outside of the plantation and, and free to make my own choices and free to make my own decision over this body that I haven't had to really ever because even as a 17-year-old, my parent had authority over this body. And so I, I, long, I long for that to be uh, an adult male having authority over my entire mind, body, and soul. And so in those challenges, I, I hit them head on. I've made great progress. As I said before, I'm on, you know, I'm on, I'm in the political arena of San Francisco. One of my aspirations is to run for the mayor of San Francisco. Uh, that may be very difficult to win because there's a lot of good politicians out there and that know what they're doing and have a lot of backing. But I set my I set my ambitions and my expectations high. I, I say that the stars is my platform in which I take off from and not the limits in which I, I will try to, to reach for. And, yeah, I, I just want to acknowledge, like, United Players who embraced me, the University of San Francisco and the PACE program that embraced me and those wonderful people the last couple of years that were out. Uh, there's so many people, 
that have embraced me like yourself. Um, that would be just so, so many to name, but I couldn't have done it without the village coming to my rescue and being understanding. So when you do see and read this this new article coming out about that that focuses on some of the issues that I had in in my childhood prior to my incarceration, uh, just be mindful that as I even work to exonerate innocent people and people that uh, never had a first chance, and I want to give them that chance because I know what it feels like, that um, the details, you know, are never what is truly publicized, whether in the media or the courts. Much of the gruesome stuff is, is put out there, but to really know a person you need to sit down with them and have a conversation or just watch them from afar and see what their purpose in life is and see if they're they're with that or not. And I would love to be able to, after this, you know, in this in this life after, after next, I would love to be looked at and judged at what I'm doing today as opposed to what I've done yesterday. And so that's my mission. That's my goal. That's my purpose in life is to continue to move forward, being a a brother to my brothers and sisters of the human race and those who are confined in this system and just just be a man of honor, integrity, love. I believe that love is the most powerful force. And if I could love myself first and foremost, which I'm learning to do more and more every day, then I can love anyone outside of myself, especially my oppressors and, 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 and antagonists. So I also want to just give a shout out to uh, Marin Shakespeare Company. We have a, a performance coming up in May. Please go look up Marin Shakespeare uh, Company, the Return Return Citizen Troop 2021 project. You will be able to get free tickets for that. I believe it's May 22nd to 23rd, uh, but those dates could change, and I'm, I'm not quite sure, but I think it's those dates. Um, just a shout out to everyone who's ever assisted me and help me in this journey. I did not get there alone. There were nights to where I wanted to just fade off into the darkness of San Francisco, but I'm just not built that way. <laughs> so I was fighting. I, I was fighting my own self, and uh, my true self won through. And thank God. And my mind goes blank when I begin to thank people too, because there's so many, and I, I hate to leave off any names, but my family, my friends, my colleagues, my peers. You know, those who understood what I was going through and those who didn't, who who tried, who had to take a step back and let me, you know, walk a few steps ahead so they can, you know, catch their breath and, and, and see what's going on. And many of those are returning, you know, that, uh, you know, that had to step back. And those who stay by my side, you know, I'll never, I'll never forget you. I'll never abandon you as well. And I'll, I'll always be working like I I believe every day I wake up, I'll make it short because I know we're out of time, but one day I, I was walking home from a job that I did not want to be at anymore, and I knew that things had to change, and this was pre-pandemic, uh, and I, I saw this hopscotch on the sidewalk, and some kid, you know, our kids, drew this long uh, hopscotch from one end to the other end of the block, and I hopscotched that all the way, and when I got to the end, they had an inspirational message. I can't remember. I have it in my phone. I took a picture of it. And it was at that time and that day I decided that every day I wake up, my life is going to be an adventure I am proud to be on. 
I am happy to be on, I would love to be on, and that it will be always magnificent and amazingly beautiful in the sense of perfection as it's supposed to be. And I can honestly say that there's only been a few, one or two days that I've waken up going, oh, my God, what am I going to do? Uh, it doesn't look good. But most of every day since, especially when I remind myself of the oath and promise I made to myself, every day since, and it's been over a year, has been just that. And I believe that's the power of love for self and the power of deciding what your fate is going to be uh, within the divine fate that you've been given. And it's just about acceptance and not conforming to less than and somebody else's perceptions and and, and standards for you. So if I could share anything to anyone getting out of prisons or confinements or your own prisons, whether it's drugs and alcohol, whether it's self-acceptance or whatever your prison may be, you can be, should be the master of your own mind. And that mind is what the word man or mankind comes from. Mankind is not a gender or mind is not a gender. It's not a sex. It's not a race. It's not any of those things. The mind is a universal connection to all minds that lead to the divine mind. And you have a limited free will within your own mind to decide what your life is going to be like. Doesn't mean it's going to be long. Doesn't mean it's always going to be rosy. But you can decide how you're going to respond to what happens to you and not just uh, uh, have a, a reply or a reaction, but how you're going to be a deliberate response to what comes your way. And if you do that in a loving way, you will always have an amazing life. Wow. Thank you for that. We are going to, to leave it there. Love, the most powerful force in the universe. Yeah. Thank you, William, Tarek, Soul Brother Number Nine, and the many identities that will probably move forward in your life. I want to thank you for spending <laughs> this time with us. Thank you, Nube, and as always, I love you, and I love all the listeners out there. And if you want to donate to Life After Next, um, please get at William M Palmer Two mm-hmm. at Gmail dot com, and we're doing an education campaign. For San Francisco, if you want to donate, we're trying to raise $350,000 for that. Just let me know which one of those you want to or both. We're trying to raise $10 million to provide housing for those that are reentering our society. And we're trying to raise 350000 to educate the community on those who's trying to reenter or are reentering our society. So uh, Nube got my information. If you didn't catch that or you want to, you know, get at me, uh, please contact Nube. Absolutely. Y'all know where to reach me, newbay at sfbayview.com. All right. Thank you so much. We love you, too, so much. And uh, we will talk again because I know we're going to have to keep updated on what's going on. Yeah, I I feel pretty soon in the next week or so uh, I'm going to have a lot to uh, speak on. So, okay, I'll be back. (laughs) Okay. Fantastic. Fantastic. All right. We love you. Take care. Peace. All right, if you are just joining us this morning here on Prison Focus Radio, I have been in conversation with William Palmer II, also known as Tarek and Soul Brother Number 9. We are going to uh, take a quick musical break and come back with the 
uh, reading of the evil dehumanizing practice within the short corridor torture chamber by Sitawa Nantambu Jama'a. Can't change overnight, 
But we gotta start somewhere, might as well go ahead and start here We done had a hell of a year, I'ma make it count why I'm here God is the only man I fear Bigger than black and white, it's a problem with the whole way of life Can't change overnight but we gotta start somewhere, might as well go ahead and start here We done had a hell of a year, I'ma make it count why I'm here God is the only man I fear The Evil Dehumanizing Practice Within the Short Corridor Torture Chamber by Satawa Nantambu Jama'a This article is a clear depiction of the constant torture that we and many other prisoners endure day in and day out here at Pelican Bay State Prison Security Housing Unit, PBSP SHU, in the Short Corridor Torture Chambers, torture administered by prison guards to prisoners who are the husbands, brothers, sons, fathers, cousins, and uncles of loved ones who need us at home. We wish not to exaggerate, but to speak clearly to the suffering and the helplessness that exists when we are unable to defend ourselves against pure power. This power is the system of institutionalized racism that everyday men and women, correctional officers, COs, who are no different than you and I, have embraced. They have been brainwashed to see us as their enemy or the scum of the earth. Therefore, the COs play right into the process that leads to the mistreatment of prisoners and validates the torture. In an in-depth rundown, we will show how, through prison daily functions, we are suffering at the hands of our captors. The History of CDCR Melancholy of 1969 to 1978 Most people don't care if humans are being tortured at the hands of other human beings, especially if those human beings are considered to be the obsolete class of human beings marginalized by institutionalized racism. History has always had a funny way of repeating itself. So before going into the current torture and suffering of human beings in 2010, here is a reminder for those of you who may have forgotten about the history of torture inside California state prisons. In 1970, January 13th, the California Department of Corrections, now called California Department of Corrections and Small R Rehabilitation, murdered three beautiful new African men in cold blood in a fixed race riot set up by CDC officials when a racist correctional officer named O.P.G. Miller, a gunman and marksman at Soledad State Prison, took out W.L. Nolan, Alvin Miller, and Cleveland Edwards. One shot to each man, which was fatal only because the CEOs let each man bleed out until they were dead. They were unarmed, and their only true crime was that they were new African men who did not accept the beatings, disrespect, and inhumane treatment from racist guards in Soledad O-Wing, solitary confinement. The CEOs hated these men simply because they existed. In 1970, August 7th, the cruel and inhumane treatment and torture of George Lester Jackson led his 17-year-old brother Jonathan, a.k.a. Manchild, into a Marin County courtroom to liberate his brother and comrades from the vices of such torture. African men, William Christmas, James McLean, and Rochelle McGee were all in the courtroom while George L. Jackson was intentionally kept behind at San Quentin. In the courtroom, Manchild liberated James McLean, Rochelle McGee, and William Christmas, only to be confronted with a hail of bullets by racist CDC-slash-local police officers. By the time they stopped shooting, there were four dead, Jonathan Jackson, Manchild, William Christmas, James McLean, and Judge Haley, and two badly wounded, Rochelle McGee and Assistant District Attorney Gary Thomas. The hate for these three beautiful new Africans led the CDC to shoot recklessly, killing four and seriously wounding two. On August 21st, 1971, Guards at San Quentin State Prison assassinated Comrade George L. Jackson, who had been tortured for 10 straight years by a CDC system which has to this day signified their hate of new African men. 
In the system, institutionalized racism of hate can be seen in the prison's policies, particularly through the continual validating of any and all men who celebrate their spirit or read George Jackson's books, especially Blood in My Eye and Soledad Brothers, or who have participated in the commemoration of our Black August Memorial, where we celebrate these new African spirits who reject and resist torture and the system of institutionalized racism such as vicious beatings, being spit on, called niggers, urine and feces in their food, you name it, they suffered it. Many new Africans have been given indeterminate shoe sentences and labeled black guerrilla family members and associates, BGF, simply for celebrating and remembering these new Africans, W.L. Nolan, William Christmas, Jonathan Jackson, James McLean, Alvin Miller, Cleveland Edwards, Jeffrey Katari Golden, George L. Jackson, and countless others during our Black August Memorial. The racist officer that killed W.L. Nolan, Alvin Miller, and Cleveland Edwards was cleared of all charges, and the incident was ruled justifiable homicide. The shootings of new African men at the Marin County Courthouse, Manchild, William Christmas, James McLean, was ruled justifiable homicide, and so on. When George L. Jackson had enough of the cruel and unusual treatment in which he suffered physical and psychological torment 24-7 for 10 straight years, he too would resist against the system of institutionalized racism, and when the smoke was cleared, comrade George L. Jackson would be de dead in front of the San Quentin Adjustment Center yard, August 21, 1971. Not one word was mentioned in the press of the many years he suffered at the hands of a racist justice system, starting with the court who gave Comrade George life in prison in 1960 for a commercial burglary. Their hate was so raw, they had to torture him every year until they murdered him in cold blood. But because he left a trail of their blood alongside his, it infuriated the CDC even more, which is why the present-day CDCR, small r, uses an anti-George L. Jackson campaign to dispel this history. In the 1970s, the CDC developed the gang validation system in order to oppress any new Africans who value their legacy and spirit because the racist CDC officers who were present during these horrible times when evil was rampant are the overseers who run CDC small r today, old prison guards, sons, daughters, etc. So nothing has changed. The sole reason for the racism shown to W.L. Nolan, George L. Jackson, Qatari, Manchild, William Christmas, and more, is that their mentalities are of resistance, and those of us who possess the same mentality are automatically deemed a threat. Anybody who knows the history of the New African Revolutionary Nationalists, NARN, or Revolutionary New African Nationalists, ARNON, knows that they were not gang members, but political prisoners, who were politicized by a racist system that tortured these New African brothers throughout the United States. The Attica uprising was in protest of the G.L. Jackson killing and the torturous, inhumane conditions the men suffered at Attica as well. These are just a few of many deaths that occurred at the hands of racist prison officials. Yet, the prisoners are demonized as if they were the cause of such conditions and treatment. Therefore, we leave you with the knowledge that Comrade Jeffrey Katari Golden was left to die at the hands of prison officials after suffering a head injury, which was a deliberate injustice that occurred on August 1st, 1978, because he was labeled as the commander-chief of the BGF. This new African was left to die while waiting for hours for medical attention for a head injury. Now, these incidents have occurred a hundred times over since 1970, when the slaughter of these first three new Africans occurred on January 13, 1970, 
well into the present day. So when you read this article, know that history is definitely repeating itself within the current torture chamber. All right, that is our show. I want to invite you to come back every week because we are going to continue with this story and celebrating these extraordinary men of the historic California hunger strikes. If you want to help uh, William raising funds for the traditional housing, you can reach him at william at lifeafternext.org or raising money for educating San Francisco about reentry, William M. Palmer, number two, at gmail.com. That is our show. Get ready for Workweek with Steve Seltzer.